0: cards from a dying world the podcast for more than a decade i've reviewed over 1000 books that are mostly science fiction horror and bizarro this feed will feature bonus audio i have produced over the years as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what i've read each month plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction thanks for listening all right, joining me on the Postcards from a Dying World podcast is author Adrian Walker, um, beaming to us straight from the United Kingdom. Adrian, uh, you are the author of two books that I was a big fan of, End of the World Running Club and uh, The Human Sun, which are the two that we're probably going to focus on because those are the ones that I read and wrote very detailed reviews of. <laughs> but uh you've written several books how did you get into storytelling and and have you, obviously you're a musician uh, there there's a clue there in the room but how did uh writing come into your world um well first
1: hi thanks for, have, for having me on the podcast it's really great i actually listened to um a couple of podcasts
0: the paul tremblay one this morning oh awesome yeah yeah he was a great interview <laughs> that book is uh really good timing too <laughs>
1: Um, so yeah, thanks very much. Um, and how did I get into storytelling? Um, it's something I often ask myself because I think that the, the kind of, the, the the ideal answer to that question is usually I have a passion for story or, you know, I've always told stories I have to write. Uh, and I I don't think I ever really did. I just, I always happened to have written Mm -hmm. most of my, when I was a kid and, and it just always was something I did. Um, but it actually took me a long time relatively speaking to get to the point where I could actually write a coherent story you know what what would come out as you might consider a a story that made sense um i had various different attempts through my twenties um trying to write some sort of you know literary thriller um I tried sci-fi um but it wasn't until sort of mid thirties I would say when i actually had, had the gumption to sit down and finish a book. Uh, and I think part of the reason for that was that, you know, writers tend to um come into writing at different times. You get a lot of prodigious writers like, you know, Zadie Smith I'm thinking of particularly, who wrote um White Teeth, the British author, when she was mm-hmm. 21. Um if I'd written anything at 21, it would have been ridiculous. I had nothing to write about at 21, you know, <laughs> I had to live a bit okay. before I actually had some ideas. So um I, I would say thirty plus, and certainly when I had kids as well, uh, mm-hmm. that's when I really started to sit down. I think my kids, being a parent, is something a theme which actually runs through a lot of my books, um, just because it's a fairly intense uh, emotionally and, and physical, uh, <laughs> physically right. uh, experience. So that that
0: that comes out quite a lot. Uh, I also tell my kids lots of stories, so that you know that that helps. Right, and we'll dig into that when we get to the nitty-gritty of, of the stuff. But um, would you say that End of the World Running Club was the book that was kind of like your st- storytelling breakthrough, like where you felt like you came to, into your own as a storyteller? Or was there something before that? There was one before that called From the Storm, and that
1: was... Um, I, I sometimes think with a lot of writers, myself included, you need to get that first book out. Um because it's a hard process. You know, you learn a lot in that first book. Um, I don't think it necessarily should be published either that first book, because it's probably, probably not your best work, but um, I did put a lot of time into that book, but yeah, definitely the end of the world running club is where I found my voice um, and, you know, things started to happen after that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so that first book um, was, was it one that you published or was end of the world running club the first one that you published?
1: No, from the storm, I, I self-published. Um, mm-hmm. I, that was the one I sent off to various agents. Um, you know, I had all the all the envelopes, or I got the Writers and Artists Yearbook, sent it all off to the right people. I think I got one response.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, that wasn't just sending my my manuscript back. It had a, it was a single post-it that said "Too wordy for a thriller." That was it. No, no, <laughs> no name, nothing, not even a hello. Just "Too wordy for a thriller." So, uh, I, I kind of you know it's a difficult process for every, every writer that trying to get an agent trying to get a publisher um and and getting the rejections back so i
0: you have I to have thick skin and you have to believe in what you're doing oh to, yeah to go through that process you know those of the the one the writers who stick with it are generally the ones who really believe in their stories so but anyway so um but End of the World Running Club had two lives as well. So that first one, did you you self publish that one? And where did how did where did that go? Because I admit I haven't read it, so I don't so know the, that one. Which what the, the yeah. End of the World Running Club? Oh. Yeah, no, End of the World Running Club. I read, um, but the one before it, your your first one, uh, was it from the story you said it was? I'm sorry, I'm I'm being a bad bad uh, researcher. <laughs> Not many people have heard of that book. That,
1: that was just like the yeah, the first one. That that really, that that came out right at the beginning of the kind of self-publishing boom.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so there was still a lot of interest in, you know, people were just downloading things on their Kindle. You know, they were getting free books and, and it, it was a quite useful time to start in that industry, I guess. Mm-hmm. Really, for me, it was a good way of getting feedback um, mm-hmm. and seeing that actually there were people out there that would, that would read my work, that, were, that actually genuinely liked it. Um, and that gave me enough confidence to to self-publish the End of the World Running Club.
0: Right, and, and it, but it also got picked up later. What was the process of of um, the two lives of End of the World Running Club?
1: How did well, it get to we a were, second? Life? We were actually living in Texas at the time. My, my wife, um, we, uh, we were expats over in Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just found out that we were being moved back to the UK. We were supposed to be there for four years. We've been there for a year, I think. Uh we just got settled, the kids were starting schools. Um, but we were just being moved back. So I, I, I was very much aware of the fact that I was gonna have to go back to work um find some job in my previous career as, as a software developer. Um, and I didn't really want to do that, so we were kind of looking through the various. I remember we were at a Mexican restaurant, um and we we, we were just talking through the various sort of ideas that we were gonna do. My phone bleeped, and it was an email from Penguin, you know, Penguin Random House, and they they were saying we picked up your book, we love it, would you like to talk about a contract? So they actually contacted me. I've done everything back to front, basically. Right. The idea is you get an agent and then a publisher. I ended up publishing, then getting a publisher, and then getting an agent. So um, so <laughs> not not the ideal way of doing it, but um, yeah, from th- that moment on um yeah that was a fairly big year um you know actually getting into the traditional publishing industry and meeting people and um you know experiencing all of that
0: so did you between the draft or the version that was self-published and the version that penguin went out did you go through another round of edits and uh, another draft okay and do you and i'm sure you probably feel like it's a significantly, I, I only read the Penguin version, so I don't know the differences in the two. To me, that's a really interesting idea is that you have two versions of this book floating mm-hmm. around. How different were they? In content,
1: I mean, the, the, the whole narrative are almost mm-hmm. identical. I think we dropped about 10,000 words. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: potentially some scenes in there that really weren't that important um uh linking up the linking up the various points at which they stop. Um but the biggest change was to increase or sort of amplify Beth's voice. Uh so that's Ed's wife's voice and, and give her a bit more of a more of a part, which was very important because I was actually going to go on to write the the sequel from from her point of view, The End of the World Survivors Club. Um, so it, yeah, it wasn't it didn't change that much. I think it just became a lot tighter. It was a lot a lot of tightening on the edges.
0: I got to say, uh, obviously, I'm one of the people that discovered your book because Stephen King tweeted about it. For me, my immediate reaction was I read the tweet. And while I was still on my phone, I clicked over to my library app. Oh, wait, there's the book. And I read it within, like... It's not that I'm the biggest Stephen King fan, even. I trust when he talks about a book... The next thing was, I wasn't entirely sold, but when I saw that Robert McCammon had blurbed it, and he is one of my all-time favorite writers, and considering that, was, you know, that those two wrote Swan Song and The Stand, which are two of the best apocalyptic epics of all time, I was immediately sold, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I've told people about this book is that it is on the level of Swan Song, and The Stand, and I don't say that lightly, that I think is one of the best uh, end-of-the-world epics. Did you, where did the idea for End of the World Running Club come from? And we should say for anyone who's listening, without spoilers, that this story is about someone who has to basically, they have no other way to cross the United Kingdom to get rescued in the end of the world, and the only way to journey 500 miles, 550 miles is to run because the roads are destroyed and and everything. Great concept. Where did this come from?
1: When I think back, it's it's really interesting um, how that idea developed because I think when I, at the time I wrote it, I was a new father. So I had two young kids, like infants. Um, I was getting into running and the running was actually helping me a lot with uh, the various stresses and strains you go through as a new parent, lack of sleep. Um, And at the same time, for some reason, I was obsessed with the end of the world. I'm not sure why why that was happening, but I I tend to get obsessed by ideas, um, and that's what I tend to write about, the ideas I'm obsessed about. So at that time, I was a new father, getting into running, end of the world. The initial idea I had, was actually to write about a runner who was already a good runner. You know, he was a fit young man and he was with, going to be with a group of other fit young men running across the country and being heroes. And as I was writing that, I realised there was nothing interesting about that story at all. It's literally just a, um, you know, it's a, it's a fantasy story more than anything. So I just made the very simple decision to try and mirror the um, story of what it's like to start running. You know, when when you when you start as a runner, um, and try and mimic that whole process of of the pain of, of of starting running and the wanting to give up and not wanting to continue to actually get into the point where you realise it's getting good for you, uh, and if that that is mirrored in the book quite as as you follow Ed's Ed's journey, um, but as for the rest of it, it was really just long nights thinking about end of the world scenarios initially it was going to be a nuclear holocaust um but there was far too much uh to think about with regards to radiation and 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 all that kind of stuff so much easier just to pelt the sky that pelt the earth with asteroids Um,
0: you know what's really interesting is that i recommended this book to a lot of people uh early in the pandemic because i found there was a lot of us who um were not able to work out in gyms like we were used to. I was a runner before the pandemic, but um, I did increase the amount of running and my endurance when all of a sudden I couldn't go to the gym anymore. I knew a couple other people that were going through this. You know, I do book reviews and I do this blog and this podcast. I get asked for book recommendations all the time and especially early in the pandemic. So this was one of my go-to recommendations (laughs) early in this pandemic was i said um kept telling people this is a good one for those of you who are getting into running right now because you can kind of feel like you're going on a journey with the characters now it's interesting that you talk about the character because edgar hill your your main character in um end of the world running club it was a wise choice as a writer to make him not a runner that he has to learn this in fact it's 200 pages into the book before he actually starts running so and i think that that's important because you're doing a great job of laying out the disaster and the reasons why he has absolutely no choice it's kind of like a haunted house book where you have to have the reason why they would stay in the house right you can't write a haunted house novel until you have a reason why why don't they just leave right you got to do that so you had to do why does he have to run you know why would he i like that you're saying you didn't want to make him a hero because I gotta say, Edgar Hill's not winning Father of the Year awards at the beginning of this book. So, talk about making him as a character. Because it, I, I would imagine, since you said you had young kids, were you trying to kind of express your your fears of what you don't want to be as a father at that point?
1: That's a very good way of saying it. Yeah, because I think a lot of people a lot of people have asked me and said, "Are you are you Edgar Hill? Is that you know you just writing from your own perspective and?" Not not really at all but i i I did have that fear, i suppose that you could you could end up letting your um letting your failures get in the better of you when you when you put into a situation like parenthood uh, i don't know are you, are you have you got kids are you uh...
0: no i' I'm I'm, I'm I'm not a not a well i don't want to make it sound insulting, but i'm not a breeder <laughs> that's, that's, My wife and I are both people that didn't want to have kids, so i I lucked out on that uh for me. I'm, i like to be an uncle
1: <laughs> it's a much safer way of being like <laughs> yeah but yeah it's 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 hard you know i think people have different experiences but it does does challenge you mentally and it, and it challenges you um physically as well you know so certainly in the early years you become quite um uh the, the lack of sleep can change you Make mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it gives you strange mental experiences um so yeah, there was a bit of fear there, I suppose. But I, I suppose I'd read a lot as well and I talked to other fathers and about how they were dealing with it. And I guess Edgar Hill is a lump in of all the negatives that, that could that can um that can be in a in a father or a parent even. Um, not a reflection, hopefully, of myself as a father. But yeah.
0: And we're gonna get deeper into that with with human son, because that is that that is especially coming from my position, that was one of the reasons why I, I had, I think, a unique experience with with the book, of The Human Son. But continuing on with End of the World Writing Club, because I definitely want people to understand, I I, I want to sell people on this book because I thought it was great. The thing about, you hit a lot of the tropes of the genre because you have to, that's part of it. It's also part of the fun, right? If I'm reading a book like The Stand or Swan Song, I, I want to see how authors translate and and work with these tropes um because i think that kind of sounds insulting but it's, it's not what i'm saying is and since you got guitars behind you rudy rutker the, the the surrealist sci-fi author he always says there's certain power chords and genre storytelling that you have to be good at I know what yeah and so i think talk about like hitting those notes those power chords in the in, in end of the world writing club there were certain things you you had to do if you're you're tackling the end of the world, right? And you, but you had this fresh spit on it uh, that somebody's uh, running across the, the landscape, right?
1: Exactly, I think actually, I, I don't know if I was aware at the time that I was writing tropes or that there were bits that were tropey, if you like. Um, yeah. One thing I was very much aware of was that all of the apocalyptic um, films and, and books that I'd read tended to have their apocalypse, that the spectacle of the apocalypse uh, which is a trope in itself. You know, the, yeah. what does the world look like after it's destroyed? Tended to be centered in cities, so you'd see a lot of. Um, I mean, I went through so many different wallpapers on my my computer screen of of artistic renderings of of Manchester and London after a you know apocalyptic event. Uh, you know, I loved all that the the, the artistry the artistry of it and, and floods and what have you. But very little of what the countryside would look like if um, if it had been devastated um and you know i i brought up in in england and scotland and uh you know i love i love the countryside of, of of where i'm from so i did spend quite a long time thinking about how that would look if hillsides were blown away and and you know gigantic craters uh, appeared where cities had been before um but in terms of the more traditional tropes um i mean you i think there's a part when they get to a um a stately home
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and there's an old dude living there you know an old lord uh i think that could probably be considered a trope i think that happens in 28 days later they stay in a big stately home don't they um i, th- I think most most of the tropes you see yeah then you get to the the um, the opposite to that which is the uh, the council estate in manchester and that's been overrun by a fairly insidious force um i think most of those tropes are really just very stark Um, contrasts between what was before and what was now. That's what people like to see in post-apocalyptic films. They like to see things that were so important and and so integral to their lives or so familiar to their lives just taken away. Because I think a lot of people like that genre because it takes away all of the, the complication from life takes away all of the dust that gets into our our life and it gives you a level playing field. It's that leveling, I think that people like. Um,
0: Mm -hmm. A trick I used in in my uh, novel, The Ring of Fire, which is uh, kind of an end of the world cli-fi thing. I didn't hide it, right? I just, I put it out there in the open as an Easter egg where I named a character Robbins because I kept telling one of my friends oh he's like tim robbins in war of the worlds he's the character that they they when they get a, a lull he explains everything that's happening to him yes and then i just said well you know i'll just i'll pay homage to it instead of trying to <laughs> hide it right and um i you know and that to me is playing a power chord it's i'm gonna do what works and I, i'm gonna do that now one of the things about Into the World Running Club that's so brilliant about the concept is that what drives the suspense of the book is that not only do you have the run and the setting, but there's the ticking clock. So you have three different things that drive narrative suspense just baked in to the ingredients of the cake before you even put it in the oven. Personally, I'm a religious outliner, and I know that there are certain writers like Stephen King who's religious about pantsing and like writing from the seat of his pants i couldn't imagine writing this book without an outline because you have those three things to juggle but i don't know are you an outliner or did you write this book by the seat of your pants i'm very interested
1: i'm actually trying to think about that because the the first book from the storm no outline Mm -hmm. really was just riffing uh and i found that very hard
0: Mm -hmm.
1: world running club i knew the last um the last line right before I started writing. Um, so I knew but the the the, the general story. Um, as, in terms of outline at that point, I definitely had points I wanted to hit. It's actually quite easy. It, it's a lot easier on that kind of book because you're following a journey. Uh, so it is literally you're on a map, where are they going, what what happens in this point, what happens in this point. And you can map out all the character arts in in that in that sense as well.
0: Did you, so I use definitely, the map? did you did you look at the map while you were writing? Yeah, I would imagine you would okay yeah that uh, kind of had to help yeah. yeah and you can you know
1: you put the the, the time the, the chronology as well on that as well mm-hmm. uh, but it's certainly nowhere near as outlined as i I outlined the human sun, for example i yeah. I do outline everything now um, I, I I do feel I've gone a bit too far with outlining. Uh, and the book i'm currently writing i'm 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 easing back a bit um just because it it, it can constrain me i i, I feel if, if i have to get through a certain um few scenes without being able to explore other things i uh, yeah that 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 can that can get a bit claustrophobic so i tend i tend to sketch out the night before what i'm going to write uh and before any big sort of i don't know 20 30,000 words I'll, I'll do a storyboard of what, what what's likely to happen.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah, I always tell people that outlines are a map, but the difference between a map that's objective, your map as an outline is subjective. And if you start to learn about the story, you can always go back to the outline and redo it. I have a tendency that if I break down my books into three act structures, at the end of each act, I go back and I redo the outline based on what I learned about the characters and I feel like that's the best way to go and then I've also found even as religious as I am about outlines when I get to the last five six chapters of the book I don't even look at it anymore that's when I stop looking but I also feel like outlines are more important for us writers who have day jobs who are not living by it because yeah it's great when Stephen King says that outlines are soulless but you know, he's speaking from privilege that he doesn't have, to, He his kids are grown, his, he doesn't have a job to go to, he doesn't, you know, sometimes you might not get back to the book for a couple days and that outline can be a godsend to sit down and say, okay, where am I, what am I doing? going to write,
1: yeah, get that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, it's interesting because, um, and I, and the next question I had had was what other tricks did you use writing this book? And it's obviously you used the map and that's great because for end of the world running club, it's just perfect to, to have that map. And I'm sure your map had notes all over it. He said, with the time the, were you writing the times and the dates of where he was for all the runs,
1: the, the points they had to hit and actually trying to work out whether it's possible to run, whether it was possible for someone that had never really run before to run that distance. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and what points did actually hit? So yeah,
0: wow, yeah, you held hit. on to that map, right? So <laughs> you held on to that map, right? So you could look at it.
1: It's somewhere.
0: Yeah, that's great. No, I really appreciate that book. It was, I know it was one of my top reads of the year that year, and it's one that stuck with me. It's, it's one of those books that I got at the library and then went back and bought my own copy because I know at some point I was going to look at it again, which was for this. It's just one of those those books that really won me over and and so for example when when uh, the Human sun came out, your new book, one of those things where as soon as I saw the library had it, I was like, okay, that's it I'm gonna read it because I'm a big library user uh, <laughs> you can read as much as I do without it. The Human sun is your am I wrong is this your first real attempt at um, science fiction like I know you could consider, an apocalypse, end of the world novel is science fiction. And and I'm all for, as we talked about earlier, expanding the scope of it. So I understand that that's science fiction, but like really like centuries in the future, speculative fiction, have you written short science fiction or is this the first like real big attempt at it?
1: Definitely. I mean, again, I I don't think when I started it, I was aware I was writing science fiction. which is perhaps a bit short-sighted given you know you're right it's set 500 years in the future and it's a you know it's a race of superhuman um beings so yeah totally it has to be science fiction um but yes the the, all the other books are what you might call dystopian or 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 speculative um this would definitely fall back into the, the the science fiction camp
0: And one of the things about The Human Son is I think it is both utopia and dystopia, depending upon how you look at it. We'll get into that. I feel like a bad interviewer because I did not ask about your influences and the writers that you came up reading. Because now I'm interested in what kind of science fiction you've read. But before that, I want to take a guess just because. But two authors who I really saw in your work and End of the World Running Club specifically, and I could be wrong... But I see a lot of Richard Matheson and Robert McCammon to stay in the M's. I, and I know McCammon blurbed your book, but uh, I wonder if their influences because they're, they're very specifically two authors that I thought of a lot. Matheson because of the suspense beats, the ability to tie the emotional weight of the moments to the suspense. Nobody does that better than Richard Matheson. And so I, I saw that there. And then McCammon for being able to make the epic scope personal. Who, who are your influences?
1: <laughs> I haven't read either of those authors? I'm sorry, but I will do now on your on your uh, on your
0: advice. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, definitely Richard Matheson. Um, it, you know everyone should read I Am Legend uh, because even though it's been made into a bunch of bad movies, the book is it is is, so. is unfuckable. But <laughs> who are your influences then?
1: My influence is, I don't know, I, music and writing, any kind of art, I i, I tend to become obsessed with one thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I am fairly eclectic with, 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 with what I like, but I tend to gravitate to something and I just want to listen to that or uh, read that or, or watch it for a while, and then I move on to the next thing. But um, in terms of writers, I, I grew up with uh, Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up with Douglas Adams. Um Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was the first book I read that made me laugh out loud from a single sentence and that right. always sticks with me I remember where I was and, and when it happened I just thought wow a, a, a stream of words that someone else wrote just made me laugh out loud for you know I thought that was quite an incredible power um as I grew up uh, I tended to get more into well, I, I I went through a fair, a fair amount of po- apocalyptic fiction uh Lucifer's Hammer was a big book that, that's always stuck with me um but really um, uh, one of my favorite writers is Glenn Duncan I don't know if you've heard of him No, no I haven't I mean, I'll,
0: I um the Last Werewolf trilogy Okay I will look into yeah. <laughs> I think, recommendations so Glenn um, Duncan you say Glenn Duncan yeah
1: and he, and he he's one of these The reason I liked him was because he spans what you might call a genre and literary fiction, whatever literary is. Um, So there's as much attention paid to the writing as there is to the the traits you might say, or or, or, or the story of werewolves in this case. Um, He wrote a brilliant book called I, Lucifer, which is one of my favorite books. Uh, And that's about basically Lucifer taking the body of uh, a writer for a month. Uh, and telling his side of the story. Um, So those kind of books really turned me on. Um, I got into Zadie Smith as well, Sebastian Fawkes. Um, So yeah, I'm all over the place really with influences. Uh, I couldn't tell you what really influenced The End of the World running Club apart from what was in my head at that point.
0: Human Son is is also an end of the world story as well, but a very different one. We're going to try to, we're going to, Try to stay without spoilers for a little bit, but we are going to get really heavily into the writing of the book, and I'll give a spoiler warning for listeners. The thing about this book is, I it is part utopia and part dystopia at the same time, and it's a very thoughtful political book that thinks about, it's impossible to think about this novel without taking massive swings at the nature of humanity, parenthood, the existence of the species itself. But it seems that the very concept of having a child and parenthood is at the center of this story. Where did the germ of this story come from? Because it's such a heavy topic. And I don't want to make it sound like it's not entertaining. It is entertaining, but it's just, there's lots of levels to this thing. So where did it come from?
1: I think, again, it was um, two or three ideas that converged, Same we Running <laughs> club um i uh let me see my wife is a very very intelligent woman she's a climate change scientist uh an atmospheric chemist like ema in the in, in the book um and she spends most of her days um understanding the dynamics of of, of climate change and where everything is going so I, I have a fairly good um advisor in terms of how our planet is is going. <laughs> so <laughs> for the last, yeah. the last few years I've 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 been aware of, of certain things that have yeah pretty heavy. Um so obviously that was something that was that, that, that was pretty pretty high on my agenda of what I wanted to write about was was yeah the way things were going planetary. Um but I I didn't want to write a preachy, you know, we're all doomed, we're we're all terrible people kind of um book, I suppose I wanted to examine why we had got to that point. Why have we got to this point as, as a species where we where were letting this happen? Um, and again, I didn't want that answer. I didn't feel that answer was that we were bad as a species. I felt that there was a parallel there between the guidance that a parent gives a child and the guidance that perhaps we're lacking as a species because we've been given this incredible brain you know with this this ability to procreate and and organize ourselves uh and create technology but without any kind of guidance um unless you are a religious bent in which case you you, you consider god your guidance um i personally don't so for, for me that was that was the big sort of idea is is what would have happened i guess if we did have guidance what if we could create something that was more intelligent than us, that was able to see through the noise that, that you know, is in front of us every day of our lives, was able to see clearly about what had to, had to happen to fix the problems on the planet. And again, what would happen if that guidance could also be turned back into parenthood? Uh, so those are the ideas I was playing with at the start, I guess. Um, initially, my first idea was that it was going to be robots you know, looking after a human child. And it was, you know, it was going to be a quirky kind of, you know, comedy in that in that sense. But uh, the more I thought about it, the more it really started to drill down into the experience of a of a of a single parent, you know, a, a person looking after a, a child, uh, and all of the questions of that that come from that.
0: Well, and a lot of times with authors when they're working on a book, sometimes it comes down to making the one single choice, changing uh, two characters from romantic interests to siblings, or for example, or, and in this case, the decision to, to make them genetically engineered species, you know, of kind of ultra humans, as opposed to robots, as we joke on the Dickheads podcast, I think was a really incredibly wise choice and wise decision, um, for you to, to, to move this story, because I think the emotional core, of the parenthood, you know, challenge is is so much a part of this story. So, so yes, very, very important decision. And it's something we talk about on this podcast all the time. And I want writer, uh, other writers to think about is sometimes reframing, sometimes you can take the same dialogue, the same thing, and just move it to a different location. It's really important But this, this little decision of changing from robots to another form. Of genetically engineered life just really made this book work in a really great way. So I got to just hats off to you on that. (laughs) But the next question I have is: every every parent thinks their child is the most important in the world. But the human son kind of it balances these issues of the massive scope of climate change with right drilling down into parenthood. I I, I would I would imagine you kind of already answered this a little bit, but that that push and pull between like my kid is the most important versus like the overall mission of the it's the aretas is that how it's their overall mission versus the mission of raising this one child like talk i mean you obviously were outlining this so this you had to be thinking about that push and pull the whole time right
1: and and much of this was based on uh my own experiences um i mean my, my wife and i have a fairly balanced approach to parenting. Um, for the first few years of my kid's life, she was the primary bedwinner and I was you know uh, looking after the kids at home. So uh, we, we've swapped about our roles quite a lot. So I'm very much aware of what it's like, certainly in those early days as a parent and how isolated you can get as a parent um, and how, you know, like you say, your, your world becomes absorbed by this this thing. <laughs> it right. just seems less important, but to everyone else, your important thing is not very important at all. So that's that, that's one of the the narratives that runs through the book is that the Eartha have this higher purpose that they're working towards the transcendence. their they they need to leave the planet and become this higher intelligence, whereas Ema really is just trying to look after this trying to survive day by day, looking after this child, uh, and she becomes quite isolated in that in that sense. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was a big theme going through. Um, not sure what else to say about that one.
0: Well, <laughs> it seems like there's a, the yin and yang of parenting where there's the, like the ultimate highs and the really good moments and the moments that are, the are, are the struggle, I think is something that the reader could probably relate to in this story. I don't know. I mean, I think I can feel like the, the parent at home, even though, you, you know, you're not a single Parent, but you got kind of the experiences your wife's away at work, and that comes through in this book. I I, I think it really does. Um, Do you ever joke with your kids about uh, the role that they played in inspiring this book? Or actually, I
1: I wrote it for it's dedicated to my son. Um, He he gave me quite a lot of uh, inspiration, a lot of the things he's done, and certainly a lot of the events in that book are based on actual real happenings. Uh, Without Without being a, I don't wanna. Uh, are we okay with spoilers? Or, or we'll be getting to spoilers in a bit, so we can come back to that. There's a scene um, sort of midway through. I think when he's about seven or eight, um, he has a moment of enlightenment in the forest. You know, he basically says, "What? What is this? What? What am I? What? What? How is all this stuff here? How am I here? What? What is life? You know, what is existence? You know, this sudden kind of." jarring realization that that this is weird you know Um, and my son did that I was walking with him and he just stopped and just went what's going on (laughs) right Uh, it was like a real existential sort of moment Um, uh, so yeah I joke with him quite a lot about that Um, uh, and there's some other ones from when they were babies obviously that that, you know you get earlier in the book as well mostly involving feces and vomit
0: (laughs) right now I do come to this, I kind of ruin this in the narrative of our interview, but I come at this book in kind of a weird way. And since the human son is about parenthood and environmentalism, as a person, like environmental issues and climate change are very important to me. I'm a longtime environmental activist. I wrote a cli-fi novel myself, Ring of Fire. So it's a topic that I'm very engaged with, but just me personally, and and this is not a judgment, it's not on anyone else but you know my wife and I made the decision not just for environmental reasons but just because we didn't feel like we would be the best parents (laughs) on top of that we do we environmental issues were some of the concerns that we thought about when we made the decision when we weren't gonna have children that that wasn't a path that we were gonna take and it's interesting to me because I feel like where this book really celebrates parenthood it also part of the core of this book is Kind of questioning the should we be here should we not aspect of it i wonder like how you i mean you had to know this was happening as you were writing the book even if it was un- intentional or unintentionally you had to know that these issues were coming up how did you feel about that as you were writing this book like that those issues that different people would read it different ways on that way
1: i was very much aware of that and, and there's, there's two sides to that really uh the first is like you say that that question of do we really deserve to be here um, do we really given what we've done in the last 200 years do we, should we not be really be thinking of giving up and and you know uh, sacrificing ourselves but i didn't want that to be the main thrust of it because i also feel underneath of that there's certainly in the last 20 30 years we have become very critical of ourselves you know it's very easy to say we're terrible look at us look at what we do you know we, we see all the time that the, the videos on, on the news and um you know documentaries we see it's very hard not to feel bad as a human these days but really when you look at the decisions that have led to where we are now very few of those decisions have been cynical um aggressive decisions they're mostly the decisions of people just trying to live their lives and i suppose part of what I wanted to explore is, we kind of have a right to be here, doing whatever we're doing. It, we probably have a lot to learn in how we're doing that, and so we really do have to um, prevent the pollution, we have to prevent um, climate change from getting any worse. But beating ourselves up over it isn't going to help. You know, we need to understand why we got to that place in the first place why we've made those decisions, why we live so much in the present without thinking of the, the future, which is you know, a fairly big part of being human. Um, so that I wanted that to be a lot, another question that you ask as you go along. Are we really right to think so ill of ourselves? Could we have done it any other way, really?
0: Right. Um, and one thing that's cool is, um, and I read them a month, month apart, but uh, Human Son also kind of um, tracks well with Kim Stanley Robinson's recent ministry for the future because uh, but what I liked about both of your cli-fi books at, at coming at this time is they're both books that focus on solutions see a way for the earth to kind of come out of this in a, in a better way what I liked about human son is that it was a way weirder solution where Kim Stanley Robinson's trying to have a very scientifically accurate one I had more fun with yours Uh <laughs> i like that that it's not and look i'm i'm a person that can dwell on the doom of it all all day um cli-fi is one of my favorite genres it's there's a reason i wrote in it and and really there's a british tradition of this going back to john Brunner in 1969 winning the hugo for stand on zanzibar so you, you know there's a long tradition of of environmental sci-fi coming from your from your island and to, to see something that has like a positive outcome for, for the human species. So before we get into spoilers, I want to go to spoilers and the actual like nitty gritty of writing the book. And we'll get into actual quotes and things from it. Um, just a final pitch for the human son. And, 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 you know, like how do you, how do you pitch this? If you're uh, if parties still existed where, you know, someone says like, Oh, what's your new book about? Like, how do you, how do you explain human son to them? Um, It's not
1: as quick as the End of World Running Club, which is basically the title. Yeah, Uh, The Human Sun is uh, set 500 years in the future. It is about a genetically engineered race of humans who have solved climate change by removing humans from the situation. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And they now have to decide whether to bring humans back or whether to leave leave them out of the equation. And in doing this, they, they elect to... Create one human uh, who is looked after by a particularly clinically minded member of their species. And it's really about her story, her journey as a parent as he grows from birth to adulthood. Mm-hmm. It's also a love letter to the human race, I'd say that as well.
0: Awesome. All right. So we're going to get into spoilers. And by the way, I just did read a book, um, Mockingbird by Walter Tevis, the guy who wrote Queen's Gambit uh one of his science fiction novels where uh when we get into spoilers uh he did kind of write the robot the robot version (laughs) of this story to a degree it's a little bit different of a story but i think you'd really appreciate mockingbird and see that uh you're playing with a lot of the same uh, toys it's funny because i read those books i read mockingbird like two books after i read human son and i was like wow these books really go- are like peanut butter and jelly. All right. So uh, for listeners, we're going to go into spoilers. Now we're going to get really deep into the the writing and the construction of this. We're going to get nitty gritty about process and things like that. So if you haven't read the book, pause the podcast, go read the book, come back. Um, if If you're, if you don't, worry about being spoiled and just want to hear like some good writing advice you can stick around too because adrian wrote a hell of a book and i want to get into how he did it first off uh, let's talk about the, the areta and their motivation and where they came from i have this quote where uh one of the the areta characters says i've spent my life planning transcendence five centuries planning our escape from this rock we don't belong here i'm a uh, not in not in this place of beasts or hurricanes, but they do. This is where they thrive in the dark places. So, um, it's going to be really hard to write about this species without turning them into stock villains or turning them into these things. But, but I like that you you made them very neutral. Like that had to that had to require some. Did you think out their retest separate from the narrative first? Did you spend a lot of time thinking about them? outside of the narrative, like I have to know who these the species are before I even start the narrative. That's what I was wondering.
1: Yeah, I definitely did. Um and actually my publishers helped me with that because um they almost demanded a document detailing who the Urta were. So I had to write a bit of a world building document to de- define exactly what they looked like, uh how they behaved and uh one of the key features of them is not what they can do which is fairly uh impressive you know that they're very strong and they're super intelligent um they're basically quantum computers on legs Mm -hmm. but not just what they can do but what has been taken away from them in terms of their genetic code so they have none of the fear um none of the distraction none of the um none of the play i suppose that, that humans have which, in the book, they certainly see as, as, as facets which have held humans back. Um, so without all of that noise in front of them, they're able to see very clearly what has to happen. Um, they're also a species that require a purpose. They need to know what their purpose is. And their purpose was very clear. They were, they were designed to fix the planet from climate change by hook or by crook. Um, so yes, I spent a long time thinking about how they would behave with each other. Um, a lot of time I spent with actually how they communicated, um, and there's three methods of their communication. Um, you ever watched cats together?
0: No, no. Oh, you mean the the animal, not the movie? Yeah. Yes, I've I've had cats around a lot. Yeah. Um,
1: they sometimes appear to communicate just by looking at each other. You know, there's, they kind of walk around each other and there's, a, there's, there's almost a, an interplay of, of, of words there that isn't there. So that was one of the ways that the Urtah communicate because their brains are so aligned.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They can predict what the other person is going to say before they, they say it. Um, so in the early days of the Urtah, that's how they communicated silently. They just knew what was going to happen, what the other person was going to think or say Um, and it was only later on that they started to develop different methods of of, of speech. So language and speech and communication was a fairly heavy part um, of the process and certainly because because it's written first person by one of these these beings, I had to reflect that in her tone. So she is very, you might consider, fairly clinical and, and undescriptive to start with and she actually uses no similes at all for the first, I would say third to half of the book. Um, purely because she doesn't understand what similes are. But what's the point in saying what something's like when you can say what it is? You know, that, that's that's their idea. The, the idea that you have to describe a sun like something that hangs like an orange just doesn't make sense to her. So um that was a very freeing experience to write without simile or metaphor. Literally, you're just stating facts and and, and writing out, you know, how things are, but also quite
0: challenging because at the same time I have to make it interesting.
1: Um,
0: And we'll get, we'll get nitty gritty on the pros too, because I do have questions about that. Cause uh, there's some really interesting things going on there, but keeping with the Aretha it's interesting because one of the things that you had to build up to in this book was that as their purpose dwindles and changes and transcendence becomes their new purpose. And as uh, Irma or Ima, Ima, sorry, um, as Ima becomes a parent and her purpose becomes raising this child, there they change, um, just like humans change becoming parents, and humans change when their purposes change. The new pressures change how they behave, but you had to make that consistent. But you also had to, you know, when when Ima makes a decision that, no, I don't want to transcend. I'm, I'm going to stay here for my child. That changes everything. And then that turns into, for the first time, this species like considering violence and these things. So you, I mean, that had to have been very challenging to write as far as like knowing how to progress that and knowing, you know, how you were doing those things. How much did you think about that progression in their behavior? Um. I think that was one of the things I hadn't
1: outlined was that progression. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew basically the book. The book starts off, and you are you are given a narrative of how things have gone. You know you, the, what has happened with humanity in, and and in, in the past, and where they are, why they are where they are now. And that's certainly the narrative that Emma starts the book with. That's that's what she believes. But yeah, spoiler alert, it not quite what happened. <laughs> uh, as she finds out much later in the book, so I guess I had to find a way of understanding what the different level levels of the earth are you know, there's, there's a kind of hierarchy to their society um, in terms of their responsibilities um and what those different levels have have brought out. Uh, so one of the big narrative arcs is is the fact that you know, like you say, as soon as their purpose is fulfilled. They start to become a little bit more like humans, you know. They they start to dwindle back into the old ways of violence and and disagreement, and um, the reasons for that become quite clear later in the book.
0: Uh, well, we're in spoilers. We're we're assuming that everyone's read the book at this point, so you can so, boil uh, away. <laughs> so we 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 believe
1: that humans have died out peacefully, mm-hmm. uh, but actually thanks to the decisions of probably quite a few of the earther you know a relative few of the ERTA, it's not that peaceful at all you know they're, they're they're destroyed um not because they fought back but because they just wouldn't move out of the way of some trucks basically they they staged a protest um you know they had a very peaceful um very large camp around one of the the, the facilities where they they're generating a virus uh and the era decided that the only way Forwards is to destroy them. Um, And yeah, they lose their lives quite a lot. This is something that Emo finds out much later in the book. Um, And it's as much a surprise to her uh, uh, as anyone else. So, the the reason that what I found as I was doing that was there was a parallel there between what you tell kids is Mm -hmm. the reality and actually what they find out is the reality as they grow up. Yeah, we lie to our children fairly nicely you know we, we we tell them things exist that don't exist uh we tell them things are the way they are because of certain things but we don't tell them the truth you know they find that out for themselves and that that that's something that is it, it, in ema's case and reed's case the, the, the child is is fairly big you know he finds out he's not an urter after all you know and 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 he's, he's the only human left on the planet so uh, and she finds out that her species have, have behaved in a certain way when she thought it was a different way so that,
0: that yeah, and, and I picked out that scene actually as uh, one that I wanted to talk about, which is and um, where um, you know he says to to Ema, he says, um, "Well, what about underground or high in the mountains, space? They had rockets, maybe on a different planet." And then she says, "It's not possible." And then he says, "It must be. I can't be alone." And uh, one of the most powerful moments in the book is that you know all she can say is is sorry she can't like give him she can't tell him anything else she can't tell him like it's gonna be all right maybe somewhere but no she knows they're gone they're he's it that's that's it you know it's a very heartbreaking moment in the book and um you know big thumbs up for that
1: something that every parent has to do eventually you know you have to stop lying (laughs) you have to stop sugarcoating the world and tell them the truth but uh i think there's a moment might be in that scene or, or maybe later where he challenges her again about that
0: mm.
1: he says well you know how do you know there's nothing out there and she says because I, that's what i was told and he says well you know you were lied to as well so who knows what the truth is
0: so yeah you know, doubles back on itself a bit there um because no matter how much you try to tell your kids the truth sometimes they still don't want to take it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah i know that that happens and and you know there's times sometimes when they're right, maybe, but, uh, you know, it, that, that, and that there's the yin and the yang of parenting that, that is such a uh, backbone of, of, of this book. All right. So now let's talk about the technical level and the pros because the pros on this book, um, is something that, um, I think you, you doing, you're you doing your job right. Most readers, it's just going to go right over them. But being that I'm a writer and I geek out on this stuff, I notice these things. And um, on a technical level, the prose here is very tricky. And you already mentioned that in the beginning, you weren't doing similes and you, you were doing very matter of the fact. But this book also not only is written mostly in first person, but it switches from time to time to second person. Where Emma's speaking directly to her son and 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 um, to Reed, and uh, you know she's really writing this book for Reed. It's not for us. It's 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 for Reed. So that presents like really tricky moments because at the same time, this whole book is and and, and oh, you know, I just got it. I just got it, Adrian. I just figured out one of the aspects of this book. Because he just said it. This book is both. I am um, uh, explaining the hard truths to her son, but Adrian explaining the hard truths to our species to a certain to a certain degree. Uh, I know you said you didn't want to be preachy, and I don't think that it is preachy. But I think you're you're expressing yourself. It's political science fiction. I like it. Um, I mean, John Brunner is my favorite science fiction writer, and he was as preachy as it gets. Um, so i'm fine with that but i see that you know you're communicating you're writing obviously for for a reader but at the same time you're having to write through i eyes to read so balancing that on a technical level must have just been really 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 tricky um did you have was a second draft where you, did you have to iron a lot of that out on a second draft or, no, or? this
1: book probably to date the easiest book I've written Um, and that is down to the fact that I I knew what Ima sounded like, I knew her voice right from the outset, I knew exactly what she was like, what she looked like, how she behaved, how she carried herself and how she spoke. So writing was really just a case of um, giving that voice, you know, the the time it needed. I can't really explain it any 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 other way than that there was no the the only thing like i say i really tried to concentrate on was the fact that she would not use simile um for the first part of the book it's only when she starts to understand humanity and and read and and the the value of of comparison and the value of trying to say what things are like rather than what they are um, that she starts to use that but in terms of um like you say the nitty-gritty of the prose that's really just ventriloquism you know it's it's really just hearing voices that i've heard through my life uh, in my head she was very very british you know she's very um almost like galadriel in a jane austen novel that's that's how i imagine her sometimes that kind of you know, powerful voice but actually um the audiobook that, that that came out in june uh is done by a, a brilliant Actor called Alison O'Donnell, a Scottish actor. And she asked me, you know, what what voice do you want Ema to be? And I said, Well, I wrote I wrote it in this kind of Southern English way. And she said, I, I don't think I could keep that up for that length of time. It's gonna to have to be Scottish. So she's done her in this Scottish accent, it's brilliant to hear. Uh and my 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 the sound of her doing Ema now is what I imagine Ema to be. Um but audio books are actually really, really good ways of of hearing back your prose and and mm. certainly the dialogue. It's a good way of of, of listening uh, and seeing if you've done the right job. Um, there were certainly a few times when I was listening to the audio book where I thought that sentence went on a bit too long because I could hear a uh, <laughs> sort of gasping for breath at the end to try and get to the next one. That's always a that's always a good indication that maybe you've used too many words.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine. Um well okay so we've kind of already got an idea of what the mission statement of this book was but when i when i every time i re- review a book now um uh, starting this year i've started trying to look for mission statements that i in a book and i know not every book has one but i kind of try to look for something that i feel expresses that and certainly i saw it in the scene where um where uh where they're arguing about the human species and Reed says, you know, I've seen what they've done, all the, the, the fighting. And, and then, um, Ima says all the fighting, you mean, um, anyways, that's not all the only thing that they did. That's not the only thing that they did, you know? And I feel like, um, a huge part of the mission statement of this book is that, you know, is what you said earlier, like we have a right to be here. We have the right to do this. And, What's interesting for me is for, for me as somebody who really loved this book and really thought it was a beautiful book. And it got if I would read it before the end of the year, it would have been very, it, it would have really been high on my best of the year list, which is saying something because God, I loved the only good Indian last year. And I thought to myself, I'm not sure if the human son w- w- would have beat it out. And then I was like, just glad I didn't have to think about it. Cause I read it in 2021, 20, um, which is a little inside baseball, but anyways, um, as far as the mission statement goes, and I know I'm rambling a little bit, but what's really interesting for me as somebody who really loved this book is, um, I had a hard time with that. I had a hard time with that mission statement because I'm a little bit of a misanthrope and I admit this me too. Okay. and it was really interesting because one of the things that I think is great about this book is it challenged me. It challenged me as a misanthrope. And I actually, and this line, like when I read it, I had the thought of, I, I I was literally holding the book and I thought to myself, well, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I really like how it was delivered. (laughs) And, i'm interested to know how you feel about that because i don't know if you thought that was the mission statement of the book but that's but it was so interesting to me to find a mission statement of the book that i loved and and not sure that i you agree with it. it
1: right i don't think books really should have a mission statement or maybe 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 you know wrong with um i'm very uh, aware of something called armature do you know brian mcdonald
0: no, I'm not familiar. No, he's a
1: um, I think he, he's a screen artist, he's just a, a, screen, a screenplay writer, but he also is brought in by Hollywood to fix scripts. So mm-hmm. he's a script fixer. um, and he's written a book called Invisible Ink, which is really good, really good. I go back to it constantly. It's got so it's really short, but it's got so much good advice about story you know, and how stories work. And one of the um, the key things he talks about is this thing called armature, which I think is what you're trying is the same thing as a mission statement in, in, in your words, uh, and it's really what drives the whole book. You know, what what not just the theme or the character or the narrative. It's what central idea drives every single scene of every single book. What do you take out of it? Um, and I think that is certainly one of those what you what you've said the the idea that we're we're entitled to be here and and we shouldn't beat ourselves up too much. Um, There's another one in there, which um, I don't know where it comes in, but it's stated out loud in the book, which is that things have to get worse before they get better sometimes. Um, And I think that's just a strong, but like I say, I I don't think these armatures or mission statements should be messages that you want to force down people's throats, that they should be questions that you get people to to ask themselves. So I'm really chuffed that you have asked yourself that question uh, because of reading the book. Um, that, that's really all you can really hope for, um, and yes, I, I completely understand why you would think otherwise because I'm I'm fairly, misanthropic as well when it comes to humanity. <laughs> um, I suppose when this when I wrote this, it was what 2016, 17 when I started to write it. So this is when things were happening in America. Um, you know, we had Brexit in the UK. Um, things were changing quite a lot, and people were really. Hard on themselves and really coming down on on us as a species, and when you have social media that amplifies that, you know, so much, it really sort of stuck with me this idea that why 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 do we alone consider ourselves this one species on the planet as being so awful? You know, no other species on the planet questions itself the way we do. Uh, fair enough, no other species on the planet creates coal-fired power stations, but I mean. Uh, <laughs> It's this kind of um, relentless gnashing of teeth we have about ourselves, I think is probably going to get in our way if we really want to fix our our problems. Um, So, yeah, that's where that mission statement came from. But I can understand why you you would think differently.
0: Well, I like a book that challenges me and I like a book that makes me think. And that's one of the things that did. So this question may seem like one we should have talked about before spoilers, but I do I do think that it is kind of a spoiler to answer this question. And that is, and I, I did mention this before, but do you feel the human sound is a utopia or a dystopia because I, or is it both? Because I think it kind of exists in both spaces. And I think that that's kind of one of the neat things about the book is that it exists in both spaces, but do do you come down on it being one or the other? I would veer towards the utopian.
1: Um, purely because I do think our future potentially lies in the help of artificial intelligence or a different intelligence Mm -hmm. I do think that our success as a species is going to rely on that fairly heavily Um, so in terms of, of that yes that's that's a utopian ideal for me obviously in terms of the entire human race being wiped out not very utopian but um (laughs) the idea that we could regrow from that is (laughs) pretty good yeah
0: yeah now um i want to thank you for writing science fiction and for for gracing the genre with this with this work because i think that's that's great did you get any pushback from from your publishers for doing because you know the marketing people like to put everybody into a box and say you know well that's going to be confusing because you're going to have one book on one shelf and one on the other or you know or or did they just get the idea right away that like that oh, like, in fact this book was supposed
1: to be my third book for penguin mm-hmm. uh Random house and i wrote it and sent it to them uh and i had quite a dark week where i got the initial response back which was yeah really great um but we, we can't publish it in a way it is you know we need to change it and have um, all these different changes to the narrative and, and and make it more about Reed and have his point of view um, and it's it's uh, this is something I always say to writers you know you, you should listen to gatekeepers you know you should listen to editors and agents when they say these things because they know what they're talking about but there is also a line you know if what they're asking you to do is not in your heart of hearts what you want that story to be, you're also entitled to say no. So I made the decision to say, I'm not doing that. Um, and we decided together that that book wouldn't be with, with Penguin. So I took it to my agent. Luckily my agent championed it Mm -hmm. and we found, um, Rebellion who are part of Solaris and they're a, you know, they're a hardcore sci-fi fantasy outfit Mm -hmm. and they loved it as it was um and, and didn't want to change much about it at all uh so yeah i did get kickback, back but not from the publishers that actually published it. they actually
0: did it okay yeah i guess i hadn't noticed that it was a different publisher in my head which I, I i should have noticed that um but you know you're a writer who now when i see your name on a book i don't look at the i just say okay i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna read that
1: um every writer wants to hear
0: <laughs> yeah exactly well um i think the, the skill with which end of the world running club uh knocked my socks off um i was i'm there for it um and uh here's the thing um human son is is uh um a really deeply thoughtful and beautiful piece of science fiction and it does what science fiction does at its best which is use today as a you know, uh, uh, writes a book about today using the lens of tomorrow. And it's the, the kind of thing that uh, we need more of in science fiction, we need more challenging science fiction. And I hope that some of the writers that um, made it this far uh, in the interview will, will, will learn from you and, um, and, and do emotionally challenging science fiction. So on that note, um, last Lastly, is you said this was your easiest book to write, but there had to be uh, there had to be challenges in the narrative that um, that you you weren't expecting, and um, every every writer has that. But I'm wondering if you could tell us about something that you a spur of the moment solution that you came up during the writing process that might be good for other writers to learn about that happened on Human Sun. So, um i can think of
1: one particular point, uh, and actually my agent helped me with this um so again spoilers but very near the end there comes a time where there's a, a standoff between the sundra who are a, a kind of splinter group of the earth who prefer to stay on the earth and a much more you know environmental you might say or, or uh, much more human and the high council of of the earth uh And it's worth saying at this point, there is no violence in in ocean um, society. They don't hit each other. There's no war, it just doesn't make sense to them. But there is this scene uh, where they they have this standoff. And interestingly, we were talking about tropes earlier. I found myself at this point falling into, I remember writing it, thinking, okay, I'm getting very tropey here. This is now a battle. You know, this is a battle scene between two tribes, um, one higher, one, more earthy Um, so I just let myself get carried along with this trope Uh, and as I was writing it I remember feeling I I wasn't happy about the way it was going Um, you know people were dying all over the place there was smoke everything was just like out of any any fantasy film you've seen where there's a battle Um, and my agent picked up and he said this doesn't seem right Um, and part of the problem was that there's a there's a moment when someone throws the first punch
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And no one's shocked by it. They just go all in and they start having a fight. And I remember my agent Sam said, what about if you just have him punch one single punch? And then everything just loses their shit, <laughs> right? And then they they realize they've crossed a line, you know, that, that that's a line that they've crossed as a species that we have crossed many, many thousands of years before. Um, and they back Got away from around them. the world. Yeah. And the whole scene just backs down. Uh, there is obviously violence later which you don't see but um that was that was a point at which um like you say you have to just think of things in a slightly different way and and and, uh, helps having a having someone that's read the book to to help you along with that
0: oh absolutely yeah um it's uh when you get the right editors and collaborators uh to to help you along it's it's really important to have people with the outside eye sometimes um you know point you in the right direction uh adrian uh this was awesome uh i really love human sun and can't wait to see what you got next um do you have uh anything that's close to finishing that we can look forward to or i'm about two thirds through my next book
1: it's i'm not in contract at the moment so this is all speculative uh it'll be going to my i'll be going out to pitch it but it's a haunted house book Ah.
0: so i'm taking that piece of advice yeah yeah um well it's funny because uh that that one piece it's the it's that one thing that's the essential to the haunted house uh you know um, one of my favorite examples of that recently is i or a couple of years ago i read lisa morton's the castle of los angeles and hers is about a haunted playhouse and of course the woman like all of her money is tied into the playhouse she just can't leave She can't give up on the playhouse because if she does, she'll be homeless and you know, all of her reputation is gone and it's always that one thing, right? You know, you gotta have that uh, one thing. Well, I'm really looking forward to see what you do with that genre. Um, uh, like much like Paul Tremblay, when I was talking to him and I said, you know, uh, um, which, which genre defining trope are you going to do in an amazing (laughs) new way next? And, uh, uh, I'd I look forward to that as well um but yeah and I can't believe you've never read Robert McCammon the reading end of the world R- Running Club I can't believe you've never read Swan song it you gotta read Swan song um, I'm
1: Reading writer. I, I'm just terrible yeah
0: I'm it, up. i I that's the only one I'm gonna I'm just gonna put my foot down and say Adrian, the author of End of the world Running Club and I know he's blurbed on your book he's blurred your book that Swan song is right up your end of the world alley. I, I, I guarantee um, I would almost bet a toe that you will love that book. Um, as you a, know, I'll stick it on my
1: like Kindle and uh, I'll let you know when we get on.
0: Yeah. And I wrote down invisible ink. Cause that sounded really like, um, like one that I get a lot out of too. So Adrian, thank you for joining us um, on postcards from a dying world Um, i'm sure the listeners got a lot out of this um and i hope to have you back when we have a haunted house book to talk about so
1: thanks pretty much for having